Thank you. Good afternoon. How are we doing today? It is a wonderful day to be celebrating literature in Baltimore, Maryland. My name is Greg Wilhelm. I'm the executive director of the Salient Project. Um, and welcome to the 10th annual edition of the City Lit Festival, which is our premier, premier public event. Uh, we do uh, events all year long. We do craft workshops. We do um, professional development workshops for writers, stuff for kids. Uh, we are a big part of the Baltimore Book Festival in the uh, fall. Um, so, and, and we have a book publishing imprint. So uh, myself and my staff and my board of directors were out there working hard to raise the profile of the literary arts in Baltimore and bring you, uh, the people whom we serve, uh, the best uh, literary arts and writers uh, the country has to offer, both locally and from across the country. So thank you for, for coming to this, our last event at the 10th annual City Lit Festival. Um, uh, and because it is our 10th event, um, I need to thank a few people, and she said she was going to go buy a book, uh, oddly enough, George's book, and she's not in this room. Um, so I don't think I can stall too long, but no event like this uh, happens in a silo. It really is a collaboration of uh, the, uh, uh, between City Lit, between uh, us and the Pratt Library, and many other literary artists. Um, uh, and and uh, you saw that bustling literary marketplace downstairs. Uh, that by far was the largest literary uh, marketplace we had to offer, a premier uh, platform for the, the area's writers and editors and people who work at literary journals to showcase what they do to you, the readership of, of the region. Um, I want to thank Judy Cooper, and darn it, she's not in this room. Um, Judy Cooper uh, is the director of programs and publications here at the Pratt Library. Uh, she is the one that basically uh, said after the Baltimore Book Festival got wiped out by Hurricane Isabel back in 2003, she said, um, why don't you bring the party to my place, the library, and, and we had a scaled down version of the, uh, the book festival the following spring, spring of 2004. At the same time, I was just incorporating the nonprofit City Lit Project so we decided to call that first event City Lit Festival, and that was literally our first event as an organization. Um, and here we are 10 years later. And uh, so everyone, she's a very distinguished, lovely looking woman with gray salt and pepper hair, so wearing all black today. So when you see her afterwards, give her a big hug uh, and, tell her that, and tell her that Greg said thank you, Judy Cooper, from, from the stage. And of course, thanks to Dr. Carla Hayden, the executive director of, um, of the Pratt Library. Um, and this particular event, being our biggest event, could not happen if it uh, wasn't for the volunteer service of City Lit Project's board of directors. So if the board, uh, if you are a board member, please uh, stand, or Lalita, you're walking around in the back, just wave your hands. If you're a City Lit board member, please raise your hand. I know many of them are still downstairs um, uh, working, working the festival, that's <laughs> what they do. Um, uh, or if you're just volunteering for City Lit today, uh, I really appreciate it. The Board of Directors appreciates it. Um, it's, a, it's a huge effort to try to organize this event, and uh, it doesn't run as smoothly as it does if it isn't for the volunteers uh, that help us uh, nurture the culture of literature in Baltimore. So that brings us here today, uh, April 13th, 2013, our 10th uh, edition of the City Lit Festival. Um, the funny thing about starting a literary arts nonprofit is um, it consumes all your time and you stop writing. <laughs> and that's what happened to me. Um, so a year ago, I decided to uh, jumpstart my own writing life again. Uh, and because uh, I work full time and I have a family, really a, a, what they call a low residency uh, program was my only option. And there was a brand new one uh, at the University of Tampa that a friend of mine was starting. And uh, uh, they let me in. <laughs> and so a year ago, I started this new program. And its very first residency in, in January of 2012, our uh, special guest uh, was George Saunders. Um, and George was so gracious, so funny, uh, so uh, uh, gave of himself and his time to be part of that first residency. Um, he was a big hit. Um, a year later, now back at Tampa for my third residency, um, Judy and I were trying to figure out who to invite to be our headliner 
at the 10th annual City Lit Festival. I said, well, I've been a fan of George's work for, for a long, long time. And uh, I knew he had a new book coming out. I said, well, let me email George and, and see if he's available for that, for that weekend in April. So I literally emailed George on, uh, I think, the Friday, the, the first Friday I was in Tampa, first weekend of January 2013. And that Sunday is when the New York Times dubbed his book, the 10th of December, the best book you'll read this year. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm not getting George. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think if I had waited four weeks to send that email, I probably wouldn't have gotten George. Um, but he very graciously accepted. And uh, driving in from the airport last night, he, he really did share how much the last four months have, have been a whirlwind. Um, here is a literary writer, uh, a quirky writer, a short story writer, for goodness sakes, uh, who writes very funny stuff, darkly humorous stuff, um, uh, having, the, having, having the moment of his life. Um, so much so, uh, uh, I'm going to introduce him formally in a minute, but he just won the, uh, the Penn Malamud Award just last, just like last week, wasn't it? So, which is the... Uh, which is the premier uh, award for, for short story writing. So, um, uh, so thank you, George. Thanks for accepting my offer uh, four months ago and for, uh, for joining us here in Baltimore. Um, George is the author of three collections of short stories, the best-selling Pastoralia, uh, set against a warped, hilarious, and terrifyingly recognizable American landscape, um, Civil War Land in Bad Decline, a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award, and in Persuasion Nation, one of three finalists for the 2006 Story Prize for Best Short Story Collection of the Year. As I said, the New York Times Magazine on that uh, first weekend in January called Saunders' latest collection, the 10th of December, the best book you'll read uh, this year. Um, George joked last night, um, well, here we are only four months into the year. It, it's, it has another eight months to sail through before he, he feels comfortable uh, accepting that, uh, that kudos from the New York Times. Um, in 2006, George received a genius grant from the MacArthur Foundation, which described him as a, quote, highly imaginative author who continues to influence a generation of young writers and brings to contemporary American fiction a sense of humor, pathos, and literary style all of his own. Please join me in welcoming George Saunders. With us again this year, as he has so graciously done in the past uh, years, uh, Tom Hall, the arts and culture editor uh, for WYPR's Maryland Morning with Sheila Cast, uh, also the executive director of the Baltimore Coral Arts Society, a friend of City Lit Project. Uh, Tom has agreed to uh, uh, lend his talents to this event uh, to engage George in a conversation. And lastly, after we finish here in about 45 minutes or so, um, George's books will be for, available for sale uh, downstairs at the Barnes & Noble table. Uh, thank you, Barnes & Noble University of Baltimore, for pro providing sales support. And uh, he'd be glad to continue uh, conversations downstairs in the literary marketplace as you get your books and get them signed. So uh, George, Tom, thank you so much for being part of the 10th Annual City Lit Festival. Thank you. Greg. Thank you, Greg. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Good. Uh, Greg Wilhelm is one of our city's great treasures. And the work that you do with this organization, Greg, is so, so appreciated by all of us. Anybody who loves literature, thank you very much. I appreciate it. How many of you have had the great pleasure of reading this book? There we go. It's hard to raise your hand and clap at the same time, isn't it? Um, it is, George, uh, just a tremendous, tremendous uh, achievement. It is a, it is a terrific read, uh, every story. Uh, I, as I told you on the radio the other day, I have not had a chance to read your other stuff, but I will uh, correct that uh, quickly. Um, we've talked about the fact that uh, we're both musicians, in addition to doing other That's very things. generous. You are. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I said it before, I own an instrument, so that's <laughs> 
<clears throat> but in the history of music, um, in classical music, which is the little bailiwick I'm in, there are some composers who are seen as uh, innovators, precedent breakers, you know, guys who are starting, and it's mostly guys, unfortunately, starting new stuff. Mm -hmm. And other people are seen as, seen as the culmination of uh, particular traditions, Bach being the great culminator of Renaissance and Baroque polyphony, uh, Beethoven being the great precedent-setting, you know, uh, rule-busting guy who starts out. This work, um, and again, I'm not a lit professor. I'm a, just like everybody here, I'm a reader. Um, it just the style, the, the, the perspective seems sui generis to me. It seems very, very unique and individual. And I wonder if that is something that you're aware of uh, and if you, uh, you know, consciously cultivate to, to have a, a, a unique voice. Hmm. It, it, it is important to me to have a unique voice, but I noticed at some point that uh, that came more out of kind of embracing your deficiencies. So in other words, I always thought that, you know, when I was young, I thought, okay, that what uh, writing means you have a talent who's this sort of trained Labrador retriever, and you say, fetch me a novel, you know, make, make it a <laughs> lyric novel, boy, go! And he runs out there, and then he brings you back this beautiful thing. But in my case, once I kind of hit my stride in my early 30s, I would send the dog out, and it would bring back like the lower half of a Barbie doll or something. And you'd be like, really, that's it? You know, and, and I could see that it was, that, that thing was related to some deep things about, you know, of who I was, but I didn't really like that it was so misshapen. But then at some point you sort of, I guess artistic maturity might be to say, well, all right, you know, at least it's something. So what I usually do, I usually feel like I'm trying to be Chekhov. Like in my, in the way I, even when I read a story later, you know, I'll, a story will sit for a while and I'll come back and read it. And before I start, I'm like, yeah, this is kind of a tender Chekhovian thing. And I get into it and like, oh God, what, who, somebody rewrote this, you know, but in my end. So I think I'm always trying to hit a target, but there's a sort of a systemic distortion that happens that might read as originality, but it has to do more with an acceptance of certain, I would say, neurological uh, you know, <laughs> tendencies that just sort of, it, it's almost like predictive warp. And uh, so in that way, I, I can sort of see that it doesn't, it, it sort of is its own thing. Um, but it's never because I decide it's going to be. It's more, you know, I think actually what it is, is through the process of revision, you're submitting to deep hardwired tendencies in yourself. So in other words, the first draft we write isn't really us. It's sort of what we, maybe what we want to be, or it's us sort of imitating something else. But as you submit to the, the humility or the humiliation of revision, uh, gradually the very authentic part of you starts to assert itself, whether you like it or not. And the pisser is, it, it often isn't what you had in mind at the beginning, you know. So that's, that's uh, if there's originality, it always feels like sort of shameful. <laughs> Shameful originality, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And and uh, are you a, a great reviser? I mean, are, do, do you write? Do you write easily? Uh, I write easily, and I revise like a crazy person because mm -hmm. I have a, like the inner inner nun, you know. Mm -hmm. Mr. Saunders, you're gonna publish that shit? What do you think? <laughs> Who do you think you are? So so I have. What uh, kind of nuns did you study? Yeah, with? Well, they're, they're, they're like the liberated nuns. <laughs> yeah. Motherfucker! Here, here. <laughs> but but I really there is some kind of internalized thing where if I. Uh, I did, it's just never quite good enough, and uh, so it's become kind of a joyful OCD thing where I'll just revise over and over, and then very gradually it starts to kind of seem more something, more uh, more me or more defensible, and so yeah, I, I I'm not sure I'm a good reviser, but I'm a really obsessive, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm comfortable with the process, and then also that it's kind of nice because if you um, start to learn your own process of revision, then the first draft is never a big deal. It's just right. whatever you put, it, I can fix that, no problem, you know. But mm -hmm. conversely, if you're someone who doesn't, who isn't comfortable with your own revision, you tend to, uh, I'd, I'd say you overinvest in the first draft, and if it's no good, then you're ruined, you know. And, yeah. and and if it's good on Wednesday and bad on Thursday, you jump off a cliff. But if you're but if you're convinced that it's malleable, then it's not such a crisis. Is your editor uh, much involved in in uh, in that kind of revision? Too? Not not so not so much. Uh, I'll keep it to myself for a really long time. Mm -hmm. 14 years, one of these stories was written. I remember that Sample Girl Diary. That qualifies as a really long yeah. time. <laughs> but then, and then, and when I'm really pretty much sure, I'll give it to my wife, and she gives me a really good, kind of almost like a yes or no. If she has an emotional reaction to it, then it's a go, and I'll mm -hmm. send it to Deborah Treisman at The New Yorker. And then we do a real uh, aggressive, uh, I think of it as a shrink wrapping. Like, I, I'm a pretty, you know, pretty, uh, pretty good at cutting. I'm not, I'm not, 
uh, prone to keep text around if I don't think I need it. So by the time I send it to New Yorker, it's usually, I think, pretty tight. But Deborah's got an incredible eye, and she can cut things down 20%, 30%, and I never miss the, the cuts. So that's kind of the, the, the process. And then when you go to the book, my editor, Andy Ward, is another. He, he's a good cutter, and also uh, on that 14-year story, I almost didn't include it. And he just gave me a real frank Which reading. Which one was the, the simple, simple simple girl diary? The longest story. It's the in longest the book. one, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, it took me so long, I kind of lost confidence. It's like if you were engaged for 17 years, you're like, <laughs> why, I, why, why didn't I, haven't I done this yet? So um, I kind of was not sure what to think of it. And also, you know, in a way, my aesthetic judgment machine is good on short things. Like I know if an eight-page story is working or not, but when it gets up around 40, I kind of just lose, uh, might lose clarity a bit. Mm-hmm. So that was long, and I just wasn't sure. Uh, and he, you know, did maybe the best editing thing you can do, which is encouragement. And he said, yeah, this is good. It's not quite there yet, but you can do it. You have to do it. And so, yeah. I had the great uh, honor one time of uh, interviewing E.L. Doctorow, mm. who wrote a terrific book called uh, Creationists, in which he analyzes stories. He starts with Genesis. He goes through Laura Ingalls Wilder, the Marx Brothers, the Marx Brothers, it's a great book. And in the preface of this book, he said something that really struck me. He said, stories propose life as something of moral consequence. Mm -hmm. Stories propose that life is morally consequential. Mm -hmm. Are you concerned with um, truth and with, you know, uh, illuminating the, the the sort of moral consequences that Dr. O refers to, or or the the great truths. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I don't. I never was interested in writing as kind of a craft, you know, or a kind of a side thing, or kind of a clever thing. I I always uh, I kind of think of myself as as wanting to be in the Russian tradition, which is that you, that's why you write these things is to make little thought experiments to help us work through the big thought experiment that's out there. So, you, so you know, I, I was a scientist in my previous life, and so I think stories can be like really weird end condition examinations. What if, you know, a guy turned into a beetle? You know, mm-hmm. what if this is, and then and then you go into it knowing it's not it's not a it's not really a mirror held up to life, I don't think. I think it's kind of a little uh, uh, intense experimental space where you examine, well, you examine the moral questions, but maybe more importantly, you find out what they are. You know, you, you find out what's what's the actual crux of the issue here, and I, I totally buy into that. Now, the, the problem is you can, you know, that's a nice credo, and then you can become a propagandist if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can be a, a moralist. But I, I, I definitely feel that that's, the, that's fair game. That's actually, otherwise, why, you know, why are we bothering? If, 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 if the writing and the reading don't somehow inflect our actual living, why, mm-hmm. you know? You also said in, a, in an essay that you wrote in uh, The Brain Dead Megaphone, which mm-hmm. is a collection of essays, um, that we have a culture that's becoming ever more story stupid. Mm-hmm. So stories are important. Stories yeah. are uh, <laughs> essential to telling mm-hmm. the, the the experience, explaining and understanding and illuminating the experience mm-hmm. of being yeah. human. But do we risk? I mean, are we in fact story stupid, and in what way? Uh, and and that seems to be a pretty dangerous. It's dangerous, and there. stories actually are they're, they're wonderful, and with their wonderfulness goes danger. Because uh, as anyone who's ever watched a, you know, kind of a stupid Hollywood action movie knows, you can suddenly start to think, you know, the Burmese are the enemy. Of course they are. I don't know anything about Burma, but, but this, this reality is being presented to me, and it's so seductive and so beautiful. Uh, or if in advertising, you know, storytelling can be uh, so seductive that it convinces you of something false. So I think in that essay, what I was talking about was the fact that in, in the ideal story, the storyteller has no agenda, has all the time in the world, has the purest of motives, and you have enough time to hear it properly. That would be, say, you know, maybe Tolstoy. Tolstoy, you have the book, you're fully funded for two weeks of reading, you have a hammock, you know, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's the, so that, and, and we all know that that can be transformative. Well, and that the other condition is basically TV or, or uh, kind of you know, maybe internet advertising where the, the storyteller has a rich, deep, crazy agenda, uh, very seductive tools, they're generating the product very quickly and they're slamming it down your throat before you have a time to react. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are two kind of ex- extremes. And I think we, you know, there's no, um, like anything else, in order to, to conduct oneself correctly, you have to 
find the, the happy medium and maybe be aware of the fact that uh, there are forces out there that are telling us stories for very twisted reasons or complicated reasons. And then still these, this other space exists for more pure storytelling. Let's ask you to read some of your sure. pure storytelling. Well, I don't know if it's that pure. I have, I have an agenda, too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'm sorry in the lobby. <laughs> 23.99, 23.99. Um, so I, I thought I would just read a little eight-minute or so section uh, from that long, that Semco Girl Diaries, that kind of longer piece. And uh, there's, this is kind of a standalone deal. Uh, the only thing you need to know is this is a guy's diary entry. He's... he's uh, a father or a husband with three kids, and he goes home every night from his kind of degrading job and just jots down a few notes. So you'll hear in the syntax, it's a little truncated and kind of diary-esque. <clears throat> September 30th. Sorry for silence. Crazy thing happened this week. Monday, Todd Grasberger died. Future readers know Todd? Have I mentioned? Probably have not mentioned. Todd, not close friend just work colleague. Todd and I had running joke, Ari, I had never returned Firewire I had borrowed. In fact, it was company Firewire, not his. He knew. I knew he knew. It was just our joke. Day started out fine. Beautiful Indian summer day, fire drill in morning. Whole complex emptied into outdoor courtyard. Day so beautiful, no one minded. Everyone lounging on berms, urging caution. Fun to see people of different companies, like seeing members of different tribes. Nabromax equal nerds. Cal calculating temperature needed to destroy, by fire, entire complex. Orged equal design firm. Has many hippies, prettiest girls. Many orged folks lying on backs on berms, looking up at clouds. One guy playing small wood flute. When all clear sounded, everyone booed all filed sadly back inside. Then at two, word rippled through office. Todd, dead. Had heart attack at dry cleaner, just now, during lunch. All afternoon, no one working. Everyone stunned, milling around, trying to process fact that Todd equal dead. Under Todd's desk, pair of hiking boots. Against one wall, walking stick Todd used to take on lunch, used to take on lunchtime walks in woods. Weird sun shower around three. Linda Hurtney, it's like a final goodbye from Todd. <laughs> Linda equal nut. <laughs> Once claimed crow on ledge was reincarnation of her dead husband. Said she could tell by way crow's head was cocked disapprovingly at large lunch she was eating. <laughs> then storm over, parking lot glistening. All evening, found myself looking afresh at Pam, kids. Everything suddenly precious. Said prayer before dinner. Do not usually pray before dinner. But tonight, held hands, prayed. Prayed we would be grateful for our good fortune, grateful for each other. Prayed we'd always remember that various ups, downs we may experience as family equal small bumps in road compared with this. Prayed for Todd, prayed for Todd's family. Just nights ago, Todd was in own house, doing whatever Todd did at night, taking change out of pockets, having laugh with kids, petting dog, thinking of future, tossing dirty clothes in hamper. Where is Todd tonight? October 1st, Todd Grasberger funeral today at Ukrainian church downtown. Todd apparently from humble roots. Priest equal long-haired guy in cassock. Sings chants whole service in Ukrainian, from memory. As he chants paces, cassock rope swings. Scary guy. Very intense. Sermon. Why this surprising? Did you think you were going to live forever? Only difference between you sitting there anticipating the rest of your day and Todd in coffin, bound for eternal home in cold earth, is heartbeat. <laughs> Feel that, people? In your chest, that is thin line between you and grave. So why do you live like you are eternal? That foolish. You are fools. This scary? This not scary. This truth. This reality. Shouts, shall we wake up? Shall we? Everyone's staring big-eyed at priest. <laughs> Except usual congregants who seem to have heard all before. 
<laughs> Priest goes on, which of us will die tonight? Do we think he's being facetious? That shows we are dopes. Any one of us could die tonight, die right now, suddenly come up short of breath, keel over in pew, be with Todd and Earth in wink of eye. Suddenly from downstairs kitchen, smell of roast beef. Happy chatter from church ladies down in kitchen. Smell of roast beef plus sound of pots clanking, plates being set out equal appealing. People shifting in pews due to amazing smell of beef. <laughs> Todd's two brothers come to lecter and make tributes. Older brother, Todd sweet, Todd funny, Todd a powerful force in his life. We'll never forget wonder that was Todd. Younger brother, yes, Todd super strong person. Todd equal bull. Although Todd could be somewhat firm, Todd did younger brother much good in long run by teaching him how to stand up for self. That is to say, having been pushed around by Todd throughout entire childhood, <laughs> nothing can now phase younger brother, <laughs> i.e. no bully in outside world will ever be equal of Todd. <laughs> but Todd's so great, Todd the best, Todd so smart, so good looking. No wonder Todd's mom plus dad always treated him, younger brother, like afterthought. <laughs> but Todd's so caring, so perceptive, Todd understood this, would sometimes console younger brother by saying that he, younger brother, was perfectly fine <laughs> in own way. Often just before breaking pact they had made re Wednesday night being younger brother's night to borrow dad's car, thereby ruining younger brother's chance to see girl he really liked, possible love of life. The girl he eventually lost to dope from Selden, dope whose own old, older brother apparently more inclined than Todd to give his younger brother a decent shot at family car. Todd's younger brother, breathless, pauses at lectern, can't seem to stop self, plunges ahead. But Todd great, Todd so great, Todd will surely be missed. Todd taught everyone in family important lesson. Although person might be strong, bellicose, Ambitious, slightly blind to needs of others. Still, that does not mean person not greatest, most amazing brother ever, who occasionally, as if to spite self, might suddenly, surprising all, do some reasonably thoughtful thing. Younger brother, seemingly perplexed by own tribute, then led away from lectern by scowling older brother, hissing something in undertone. Todd's widow approaches lectern, can't seem to speak. <laughs> Three little girls clinging to her skirt. Widow hands microphone to smallest girl. Smallest girl. Bye, Daddy. Lunch, good. Lunch, beyond good. Funeral, so sad. Lunch, equal heaven. Eat three roast beef sandwiches in a row, off paper plate. Outside, yellow tree blowing in wind. Single yellow leaf blows in through open basement window. Watch it come down, land near my shoe. Think. Life, beautiful. So glad I'm not dead. If, when I die, do not want Pam lonely. Want her to remarry, have full life. As long as new husband is nice guy. Gentle guy. Religious guy. Very caring, plus good to kids. But kids not fooled. <laughs> kids prefer dead dad. <clears throat> i.e. me, to a religious guy. Pale, boring, religious guy. With no oomph. Who wears weird sweaters. And is always a little sad. Due to cannot get boner. <laughs> due to physical ailment. Death very much on my mind tonight, future reader. Can it be true that I will die? That Pam, kids will die? is awful. Why were we put here so inclined to love when end of our story equaled death? That harsh, that cruel, do not like. Note to self, try harder in all things to be better person. Stop there. <laughs> Thank you.
And, and as I do the math here, uh, the Semplica Girl Diaries is sixty-some uh, pages long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, much longer than any of the other ones. Yeah. Um, why do you think that's and the story uh, is actually uh, in in some regard of, about human trafficking? Mm. Uh, how did that story uh, end up being a, such a longer format? Than the others, because you, you you've said you've written novels that you haven't published, but you really you you like concentrating I on like concentrate. stories. Yeah, Th this one was actually up to 280 pages at one point, or or you know, and I had probably 500 pages of different endings. So it it was just I really like. Uh, some, you know, for a thing to be as efficient as it can be, so every scene has to kind of earn its place. And so this one, I just kept whittling it down and, and you know, trying to make sure that there was no um, coasting. That, that, and that was a hard, hard thing. But it came out, of, I had a dream um, that I went to the window of our house in Syracuse and looked out, and, you know, kind of woke up in the middle of the night, looked out the window, and there were these five uh, women that I understood to be from third world countries uh, all wearing long white smocks with beautiful long black hair, and they were hanging on a kind of a rack. Uh, they had a wire right through their heads like this, and they were almost like like paper dolls hung up in the backyard. And the weird thing was they they weren't unhappy. They were kind of quietly chatting to one another. And in the dream, the person I was wasn't going, "Oh my God, how did that happen?" The, his feeling, he was kind of like, "I am so lucky. Thank God, I finally got it together enough to to get this for our kids." Uh, so yeah, well, welcome, that's to, exactly welcome to my dream life. Yeah, yeah, you know it is. And so I, I woke up and I mean, and I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, let, um, what the hell? And so, so then, so then to say, well, that that seems to be a deep thing. Let's let's see if we can figure it out. How, you know, how does that happen? And and not so much how did the women get in the yard, but how does he come to have that idea about it? And so that was just a long, complicated thing of trying to put the logic in place so that that image could arise naturally within the body of the story. Yeah. And it's easy for you to, to chuck stuff, to, to punt things? It is. Do you, yeah. you don't ever have you know pangs of, oh, that was gold, I have to get rid of Or do you use it in other places? I, I, 300, I, I, 300 pages of other You take it off and, yeah, you put it in a side file and just wait. Because I think my thought is that your subconscious has a story perfect. And then in telling it, you drop it and it shatters. So the revision is basically picking up the pieces and trying to put it together. And sometimes there'll be a, a piece from another story that comes out in the general flood. And it just doesn't want to be in that story. And it tells you that because when you get there, your energy of reading drops. Hmm. Or it, it, you get there and it's not, there's no logical reason. It's kind of a little bit of a goiter on the story. So then I, you, know, you just take it off to the side and let it sit there and resonate for a while. And over the years of sitting there, it kind of decides what it wants to do. You know, it says, actually, what I'm here for is this. And then that means it's a different story. But, but you know, once you've done that, had that experience a couple times, you, you, you get emboldened. Like cutting now to me is just, it's all right. It's no problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I say, well, I, I'm, I can produce stuff pretty easily. So cut it just as easily and just, you know, don't be afraid of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so many of the stories in this uh, book are just funny as hell. I mean, oh, and there are funny parts of mm -hmm. very serious stories as well. The, the, the one before the end, my chivalric fiasco, mm -hmm. it may be the, one of the funniest things I've ever oh, thanks. read, thanks. ever. Um, and that actually fell off another story. There's one in there called Escape from Spiderhead. Mm -hmm. And the riff in that story is that there's this drug that I can give you a drug and you will fall in love with whoever you see first. So it's too bad for you. You better, you better look out in the audience. But 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 then but in the fun of that was that it it, it altered good, yeah, 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 yeah. but it altered the dic his diction. So he suddenly there's another drug that you can take that makes you more articulate. So that was really fun. And in the course of writing that story, I stumbled on this idea of a drug called nightlife, K N I G H T life, L Y F E, that makes you talk like a Renaissance fair person. You know, so, and that was such a funny idea. You know, and but I kept trying to go put it in the Spiderhead story. And the bottom line is there was no reason that guy. Would be given that drug, uh -huh. except that I wanted him to, you right. know. And so, so that's when you feel like a goiter. You know, the reader feels like you're they're they're not being dealt with fairly uh -huh. because the writer's just trying to pull up the manure truck called my cleverness and go, you know. Yeah. So, so I took that part out and just let it sit to the side. And after a while, it, it you know, you sort of thought, okay, so under what conditions would a person get this Renaissance Fair drug? Well, if you worked at a Renaissance Fair, that would be one place. And then, and then the story had more honesty and it could kind of proceed. It's not a major story, but it could do what it needed to do more honestly that it, way. It, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's Shakespeare meets the office, too. Right. Which is <laughs> yeah. Very, very, very funny. Yeah. Um, you wrote once that humor is what happens when we're told the truth quicker and more directly than we're used to. Yeah. Um, I don't remember saying that, but I, and I'm not <laughs> well, sure it's true, but I'll, well, let's talk about it. I'll go. You're not under oath, but no, yeah. you know, I've read that the, you, right. know, you wrote this. Um, it, it, 
is is humor something that you're you know you're purposely trying to cultivate? You're you're, you're hoping that you know readers are laughing, you're looking for jokes, kind um, of. Or yeah, do they yeah. do they come you know organically? They they come organically, but I'm always happy when they get there. You know because I I think actually I do kind of agree with what I said there. Um, <laughs> that, that in this sense that you know we in order to survive in life you you, um, you habituate. So we you know we all put on our clothes, which actually when you think of what we wear, it doesn't. Like what? Why? Why this? You know what is this? Uh, and then we come to work, or we do, and we have a narrative that we tell ourselves, in which we're central, uh, in which we're forever, in which death and illness are unfortunate things to happen to other people who probably caused them in some way, and and in which we're going to be more or less permanently at the center of the only narrative that matters. Uh, but of course, we know that's not true. So I think what humor is sometimes is just cutting through the data in a different way and saying uh, that's something that we we all know is true. Like in that passage, you know, the part about if my if I die, I want my wife to remarry. Mm-hmm. Now I've often thought that, and that's true, except. You know, yeah. I don't really want her to marry someone superior to me in any way. You know, I, I want her. To, I want her to settle, and yeah. you know, and be sort of happy. Not you know. So why is that funny? Because I'm sure we, I mean, it's funny because we all agree on that point. You know, so so I think it's just that slight. That they slight. all have prenups that were that. <laughs> yeah, that's in. Right. You, yeah. only, you know, only marry Norris. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, I think that's part of of humor. That it, that you set up a fictive situation. And there are certain, you know, truths that are hanging around the frame of it. And you read, the writer just reaches up and touches one and goes, right? And everyone goes, yeah, kind of, you know. Yeah. And in polite conversation, you wouldn't do it much maybe or you, or you wouldn't have a, a platform to tell these truths. But in fiction, you can. And it's, ple- it's pleasant to us when, you know, when, we see, when we see someone else thinking the things that we think, mm-hmm. I suppose. The characters that you write, um, is there any... Um, character type that is particularly resonant with you. There's a lot of guys uh, and some women in this in, in these book in this book that are kind of um, schlumps. You know, yeah. they they can't quite get ahead, right. and and they're and they're they have uh, dreams of, of greater glory that never seem to get realized. Right. Um, is that a, a, a character type that's interesting to you because of what you can do with it? it yeah, it's a character type that when I do it, it's fun. You know, I mean, there's that quote I've been I've been milking the hell out of this, but Flannery O'Connor said, "You can choose a man can choose what he writes, but he can't choose what he makes live," and that seems to me, the, you know, we all have writers that we want to be, but when we actually sit down to do it, there are certain things we do better than we do other things. So for me to to find a guy, it's the Charlie Brown model, basically. You know, mm-hmm. Charlie Brown's having a bad day, and then it gets worse, and when he goes to tell somebody about it, they ignore him. And then he falls off a cliff, and then a truck falls on top of him. I mean, that—that it's funny. But but I but I so that's really the only reason is I just like that. I I I have fun with it, and I I feel for the guy. Now then, you can build up a whole system of defenses, saying mainly that we're all schlumps. I mean, you know, if you take the schlumphood as being, I dreamed of this and got that. You know, I aspired to greatness, and I was kind of a mean guy sometimes. Or or uh, um, I have quiet little fantasies that if I pronounce them aloud would be laughable. I don't know anybody that doesn't fall into that category, you know. Mm-hmm. So so that's kind of the intellectual defense, but the real truth is it just it, I just like it. it. It's fun. And when I teach at Syracuse and one of the one of the biggest things we can convey is that you sort of have to leave the idea of who you think you are as a writer at the door and go in and find out who you are as a writer and then accept it. And that's hard especially because the person that you, the writer you end up being is often in your mind, anyway, a disappointment relative to who you want it to be. I always joke that, you know, when I was young, I was a Hemingway, I had this medical affliction called a Hemingway boner, and I just, I, I didn't want to, I just wanted to be a Hemingway. That's all I wanted to be. And then, so for many years, I had this idea there's this Hemingway mountain, you know, and, and the whole idea was for me to labor, study him, you know, get up the hill, and then one day I would stand at his feet, and I would just push him aside a little bit, you know, and... and uh, and then, so you, so any writer, young writer, starts that way. You do it, and at some point, six or seven years in, you have two impulses. One is that even when you get there, he's going to be bigger than you are. That's one. And the second thing, which is not unrelated, is that you're having these this pool of really intense, true, you know, mid twenties experiences that are painful, that are not expressible in that other writer's language, which is a kind of a heartache, you know. Yeah. So then, so you say, oh, forget it. I'm coming down off this mountain, and you come down with this sense of resolution, and you get down, and you go, oh, Alice Monroe Mountain. Yeah. That's, you know, and then you go. 
So you sort of rinse, lather, repeat four or five times. And in my case, uh, you know, by the time I get, you know, through Hemingway and Isaac Bobble and whoever else there was, uh, we had kids, and it was getting a little desperate. It was kind of like, wow, the world not only doesn't want me to be a writer, it kind of would prefer that I didn't, because I could be, you know, discharge my responsibilities. And then I wrote a story that was a, the lower half of the Barbie doll came back, you know, and I saw a little Saunders shithill. It, it wasn't anything. It was just a little, you know, a little lump. I thought, really, that's it? <laughs> but but then I, but it was, seemed so much better to stand on that little shit pile than it did to try to go up someone else's mountain. Yeah. So that's so that's actually I think the moment we're trying to get to as a young writer is to say, well, this is something only I could do. It doesn't seem that considerable, but maybe if I stand on it, it'll get bigger. You know that kind of feeling. The book isn't only very funny; it's also very poignant and very moving. The last story, in particular, um, you have you know what a dozen or so stories in here. You had to pick one to to title the book, or maybe you could have picked a neutral title. But you picked Tenth of December. Yeah. Uh, two very very uh, interesting, lovable characters. I mean, people, uh, a young boy and a, an older man, um, who you both. Uh, both of them are, are immediately attractive, and, and you, you feel for them. Um, why that story as the uh, eponymous name mm -hmm. of, the, of the book? Well, that was the last one that, I mean, this, this long one was actually finished last, but it was started way before. So that 10th of December was the last story that I finished for the book, at least in my mind. And I got into, into certain things in there that I didn't think I could do. There's kind of uh, some technical things that I, I didn't think I could do. And at the end of the day, I felt like that was sort of the most artistically mature or maybe the most um, representative of how, how I feel about things right now. And I, actually, I, I, honestly, I just like that phrase, 10th of December. I think it just sounds pretty. <laughs> that yeah. was really why, yeah. yeah. That's a good but but that, that story, you know, I had, um, I read somewhere, David Mamet said that the fictive state, uh, one, one legitimate place from which to write a story is that kind of daydreaming energy that we sometimes have where we say, you know, we, we fantasize about our own uh, funeral or we have a little spontaneous revenge fantasy. And he said that that actually is, is a pretty good approximation of the state we would aspire to be in when we're writing stories. So in that one, there was just somebody that I knew who had gotten, you know, the diagnosis basically that this is it and this is you have four months. And I thought in, in the story, the man has cancer. The young boy is uh, wanders into the woods. The man is in in the woods. It's cold. It's it's freezing. Yeah. And they and they meet. They and meet. and what transpires is really quite right. astonishing. So I just had that that little spontaneous daydream of what if I got the diagnosis, uh, and then you know in that split second, really like just a half a second, I thought, well, I won't. Well, yes, I probably will. Okay, but it, and if I do, I oh God, you know, because I've I've been around people who've you know gone gone to the end, and it's can be very very scary. And I thought, ah, no way, no way, no way, I'm not doing that. I'm not putting my family through that. I will end it. I will end it. How will you end it? Shooting? No. Hanging? No. Leaping off the Grand Canyon? No. And then somehow to build a fire, that Jack London story came to mind. I thought that's it. I'll go in the woods and freeze myself because that's painless. Which I think is bullshit, but that's what that's what I thought. And so, and then I thought, in the same half second, no, I would never do that. Don't think about it; it won't happen. You know, that that kind of quick little thing. But out of that came the whole story. What if a guy stopped a little short of that and said, "Yes, I will go out and end my life uh, honorably by my own terms, not involving anybody else." So that was just that the little impulse that the story was sort of hung on. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. it's beautiful. Um, is place very important to you uh, in your writing? It, it didn't appear to me to no, be it, all that important in this. I mean, the, the places are sort of banal or or really uh, nondescript. Yeah, uh, and it's the characters that are so uh, appealing. Yeah, I, I never. I think I went through a phase early on where I, you know, I thought, well, I'll write all my stories on the south side of Chicago where I'm from, or I'll, and I somehow I. Um, I think honestly, whenever I would write physical descriptions when I was younger, I just felt they were kind of bleh, you know, mm -hmm. you know, the mount, the sun rose over the purple, blah, blah, blah. just somehow didn't I couldn't get any traction with it, you know, mm -hmm. you know, it was a dreary day in the dreary part of town, and which oh, I, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't figure out a way to be original in that mode, so I just start cutting it, you know, anything physical, just cut it on the assumption that, um, you know, if we were describing this room. You could go to the direct, in the direction of describing these beautiful lights and the whole thing, or you could say, let's just call it an auditorium. You know, no, I mean both are good. And if and if you're Joyce, describe the lights, man. Then you can, you know. But right. if you're me, you, you, they round, round light giving, uh, kind of like seashells, but not really. You know, so so you just cut it, and then and then the assumption. Now the philosophical assumption behind that is, 
you know, most spaces, if I say auditorium, you'll assume most of this, mm -hmm. and maybe we can dispense with this stuff that's particular. So that was just kind of a, an aesthetic slash a dispositional choice, which now I'm starting to try to work against. There's a few nature descriptions in 10th mm -hmm. of December. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I, I wrote some uh, nonfiction pieces for GQ, uh, six or seven travel pieces, and those are really nice because I, I those you have to do it physical It forces you to say. You yeah, have yeah, to, right, yeah. Right. If you're in Dubai, you have to physically describe it. And in doing that, sort of uh, under compulsion, I thought, well, actually, I can, I can do this. I can, I can make a room if I, I need to. So I think that's one direction I might be going is to just open up a little more physical space. And mm -hmm. you, know. you mentioned that you were a scientist before you started mm -hmm. writing, and you came to writing somewhat late. I mean, mm -hmm. full time. You started doing it in your 30s, yeah. right? In the 30s. Um, and now you're teaching. You're teaching at, at Syracuse. Um, how does, how does that, those other non-writing uh, dimensions of your life, uh, how do they inform mm. what you write? Well, I think they were very important to me. I don't think they, they would be to everyone, but for me, the uh, I worked in Asia for a couple of years, and I had a few kind of dissolute years where I uh, worked in a slaughterhouse and was a doorman in Beverly Hills, and uh, and also kind of just you know got to the place that that wonderful place in American life where you're broke, and you're kind of waiting for someone to help you, and they don't. You know, and you resolve, I'm not going any lower, and then you go, dum, dum, drop a couple, you know, interesting, what's going on here? So, uh, so that's, I mean, that's a pretty valuable lesson, you know, that, sure. that old, I mean, I, I, I think Terry Eaglin said that capitalism plunders the sensuality of the body, you know, hmm. and so that, to get a, a sort of a physical demonstration of that was very, very useful. Um, and it gave me something to write about, I think, you know, uh, and also it, it gave me kind of, I think, a... I don't know, like to work in the oil fields, um, we were in Sumatra, we were real just earth rapers. I mean, we would go into these protected areas and bribe people to get the right to cut um, lines through there and then bring in exploration equipment, which would then lead to drill rigs. And we were totally tone deaf to any uh, local culture, you know, just a bunch of big loudmouths really, you know, spending a lot of money. Uh, but to be on the inside of that, as opposed to, say, being a journalist, was really, really valuable. Because you could see that the earth rapers were kind of nice guys. You know, they, they were, they were well-intentioned. Uh, they didn't approve of earth raping on a large scale, but this is just our crew. And they did have those two kids back home, you know. So it was interesting to be allowed into the, that table uh, with no distance. You know, they didn't know you were, I mean, I wasn't a writer. So they just, they would bear all their secrets. So for, one of the funniest things was we, we'd been in, um, Sumatra, this, our company had been there about nine years, spent just millions of dollars exploring with this geophysical technique. Uh, and so, of course, you, you know, you're basically telling them where to drill uh, on a very exact grid, and, and, and they're paying you a lot of money to do this. So there was a meeting between our top people and the, the Indonesian National Oil Company. And I was listening from the next room, and it, and it became clear that for all these nine years, we've been working on a different grid system. So we would say, do you want to drill at nine, six? And they would do that, but in there, they were actually drilling at wow. five, seven. So we had randomized this thing. And uh, so, and they were still hitting at about 30% of the wells, which meant they didn't need us. They could literally just go out and right. go, put it here, and then we'd be fine. Right. Yeah. Throw a dart. So, but, but the interesting thing, and I, I remember, I literally remember the, the, the silence from the next room, and the, the jungle sounds, see, because we were in the middle of seeping in, and I thought, oh, this will be interesting. And uh, you could see that it was not in the National Oil Company's interest to admit this horrible mistake. It was not in our interest to admit it. And so the next beat was so Kafkaesque, someone went, well, that is unfortunate. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, luckily, the results are quite good. Yes, they are. Can we resolve to correct this discrepancy? I think we should. Nothing was ever said. Right. Yeah, so that's great. You know, why do you get that? Or, you know, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I, do you? <laughs> I just wanted to unburden myself. I felt guilty about that all these years. <laughs> yeah, there'll be people from the environmental protection yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. to cart you off. Um, the, the acclaim that you have enjoyed with this book. Yeah. Uh, but even going back several years ago, you know, MacArthur Award is a really, really great thing. Um, how does that inform what you're doing? Or does it inform what you're doing uh, at all? Does it, does it make it possible for you to do things that you might otherwise not be able to do? And is that the end of it? Or yeah. how, do you, yeah. how do you process something like, yeah. you know, the New York Times pronouncing you know, your shit doesn't stink. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the, the one thing, you, you have to kind of treat it as 
just as if someone has said, your shit really stinks. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to sort of say, well, that there's a, an illusory nature to that praise. That's also there's also an illusory nature to damnation. Uh, try to keep on a, on a you know, your, your subconscious is sort of laying out breadcrumbs for you artistically. I worked really hard to get it to do that, so I just don't want anything to distract me from the, my breadcrumbs. You know, that's the thing. And I mean, the other way I, I've been talking about this is that it's kind of like if you're walking down a street and you and you smell great cooking from inside a house. Now you'd be kind of an idiot not to pause and enjoy it, but you'd be more of an idiot to try to go into the house. You know, so some some might just say, "Yeah, this is nice. I'm 54." It's been otherwise. It will be otherwise again, mm-hmm. you know. But but also, I, I've noticed that it does. It the, the nice thing is there's a there's an emboldening quality to it, where there are certain like even that section I read that that funeral section, I wasn't quite sure when I wrote it that it was dark enough. That was the way I, I tend to think of my work. I got to be really edgy, really dark. But it's still kind of you know I like reading it. And so when when people buy the book and, and like the book, it makes you think, well, maybe my instincts are okay. Maybe my natural instincts are pretty good. I can trust them a little more. I can be a little bolder in doing everything that I'm trying to do. So that part of it seems pretty healthy. You yeah. know? I have been negligent because we're almost out of time, but uh, are there folks from the audience who would like to ask Mr. Saunders a question? Yes. Uh, for me, everybody it, hear that? Yeah, for me, it's just revision. It's just it's just being willing to go in, uh, and also kind of like I've structured my life so that the most important thing is is uh, going into this little writing room that I have, and um, so I really try to make sure that I get a lot of those hours, and then once I'm in there, there's a whole complicated set of things that happen that are mostly kind of a form of self-discipline, like just saying, well, uh, subconscious, come down, you know, <laughs> I trust you, it's okay, no one's gonna hurt you, you know. <laughs> But also don't be too cocky, you know, and kind of try to get your subconscious to be with you and to be yielding stuff up to you. Uh, and I think the only way to do it is hours and hours of relating to it. If you could, I mean, it sounds a little new age, but, but to kind of just say um, this is my number one priority is to be in the room with that thing uh, and to let it do whatever it's going to do and honor it and kind of follow it. And then after 20 years of doing that, it starts to feel a little happier to be with you. And it'll start going in a certain direction and asking you to follow it. If that sounds, that's an incredible mixed metaphor right there. I don't know about it, but but you know, I think I think just to prioritize, don't take it for granted, and say that your subconscious is really much smarter than the conscious. It has a plan and a desire for you if you'll just make a little bit of room for it. Something like that. And you write in this room. You live in the Catskills, and yeah. you have a place of. Do you write in hotel rooms and and, I, and coffee shops? I, yeah, and sure, anywhere. I, yeah. I wrote the first book at work. So that was really good training. I, I, no, I, I, I had this is back in the uh, Word Perfect days, and, 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 and you lost that job. I, think. I did, yeah, <laughs> no, I, but but it had you know in those days the uh, the screen toggle was Shift F3, yeah. so I would put a story up on uh, on one screen and my tech writing on the other one, and I had put the desk sort of the maximum number of steps from the doorway, you know, and I would and I actually ended up internalizing this posture thing where I'd be working on the story, yeah, 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 and if somebody walked in, I'd hit Shift F3 and go. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't even notice I did it until somebody pointed it out. So, so that meant, in, in a way, it meant that um, I, I kind of disabused myself of a lot of those writerly ideas. Like, I need eight hours. I need some incense. Yeah. I need peace and quiet. I, I just like I, I wrote on the bus, you know. So now I do. I do. I have a little. We have a little tool shed that we redid, and so now the joke is that now I'm, I'm the only tool in the tool shed. You know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, but so but just to have a, you know a bit of a routine of, of go, looking forward to going out there, spending five or six hours, and then also like trying to restrict the travel and stuff so that mostly you're there right. on a on a default day you're out there in the shed and right. just so there know. is some some yeah some structure. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. have a question here. Yeah. Um, I have to thank my daughter for buying me your book, 10th of December. I thank her, so too. So shout out to her. She, you read it at her college a few years ago. I was rereading the title story, which I do periodically, 10th of December, for, well, nourishment and comfort, and it just never fails to thank you, provide that. Uh, my question is about uh, Simply Girl Diaries, and I actually do work on public health research on human trafficking, and that story really just popped, and it's mm. this horrifying, hilarious kind of imagery. And I guess the question is really to what extent for you it's about a dream which it seemed for 14 years you were kind of maybe not willing to share because it mm-hmm. was really a kind of horrifying yeah. image and yet funny and quirky and, and innocent in, a, in an odd way. I wouldn't share it with colleagues in human trafficking like this is a really good book, you know, mm-hmm. narrative about human trafficking, right. but to what extent 
is it a, about that? To what extent do your stories need to be about anything sure. other than oh, that's what they a great are? Question. Yeah, you know, actually, when I woke up from that dream, you know, anyone, when I describe that dream, people go, oh, it's about trafficking or oppression. You know, so then the, the 14 years was, yeah, but what else? Because if you, if you have a dream in which I, this story is about human trafficking is bad, you idiots. You know, the, you're like, well, yeah, we, we know. So, so it, had to, it was going to be about that almost by definition because of the image. But then what else was it about? And that was, a, that was the real the sticking point. And it was funny because in the middle of that 14 years, I got sent to Dubai for GQ magazine. And, of course, then you see that that's not really much of an exaggeration. You know, that, uh, so I, I think stories are always about something. But hopefully, in, as you're writing them, they turn out to be about something else that you couldn't have preconceptualized. You know, there, there's that great uh, again, my, one of my standard shtick pieces. But I love it so much that I, I say it even when I'm at home alone. Uh, that uh, this poet uh, Gerald Stern said, if you start out to write a poem about two dogs fucking, and you write a poem about two dogs fucking, then you wrote a poem about two dogs fucking. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, so part of the reason you're writing a story is that. You, you, you know, but Einstein, Einstein had a slightly, as you would expect, slightly higher version. He said, uh, no, no, um, no worthy problem is ever solved in the plane of its original conception. So I think one of the things, you know, when we talk about art in that America. That sounds better, doesn't that it? That sounds better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one you do at church. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brothers and sisters. Um, but, 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 but I think when you, we talk about art in America, we also have a, often have a kind of a reductive idea that says the artist has a, has a thought or has a theme and then gives it to you while you sit there very quietly and accept it. And that's anti-art. Yeah. yeah, I mean, art is actually the process of saying, well, here's an image, wow, what, what does that mean? And in engaging with it long enough that it starts to take on a life of its own. And in my idea is that an understory kind of comes that you didn't expect. Mm -hmm. And it comes because you're discontent with the way you presented it so far, and you need something else to happen, so you let other elements in. And suddenly the story is, yes, about the first thing, but about the second thing that you could never have thought of in advance. And that's, I think, the magic that we're all kind of trying to, trying to get at. You know? The boss tells us we can have two more questions. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Um, I just wonder, um, how old were you when you were able to finally quit the day job? And did it require like, a leap into an abyss? Or did the writing career just keep building until you were comfortably in it was the latter. How I, old I was, were you when you were, were able to quit the day, day job, and did you have to leap into the yeah. abyss to do it? Yeah. Well, unless you, you know, consider teaching a day job, in which case I'm still doing it. So, but no, I, I was. Um, I wrote my first book, and it was uh, published when I was about, I think, 35 or something like that, 36, maybe even older, maybe 38 actually. And then uh, I got a teaching job at Syracuse off of that. And uh, for a year, I took a leave of absence from the engineering job. And then when it became a, you know, a tenure thing, I, I left. So I really, I didn't leave. Uh, we had two kids, so I really couldn't. Uh, so I just kept that. And I still have dreams. I wake up, and uh, I, I'm back at that engineering company. And they say, oh, you've been away a while, Mr. Mr. Ryder. And, yeah, well, you know, I kind of, I thought it would be good. And, and they say, well, you don't know the software anymore, do you? And they all kind of, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm I, an I, expert I mean, in Word Perfect. Yeah, that's right. yeah, Word, Word, what? Yeah, that's right. I can work the Telegraph. Uh, but I, but I, I often thought, you know, as a writer, you sort of have to be a little cognizant of your own limitations. And for me, uh, you know, Catholic, uh, really, I really loved, love having a family and kids. And I didn't see myself as being a, a starving writer type, dragging our kids around. I just like give me the uh, sort of low to mid level job that I can just. That if nothing ever happened with writing, they won't be disgraced, and then I could write in peace. You know, then I felt like I could be as weird as I wanted in writing because there was really nothing, nothing weighing on it. Yeah, that's great. Yes, last question in the corner. Thank you. Yes, um, I wanted to know how your nonfiction career has influenced your fiction. If you write mostly nonfiction, is there something that you can do to put yourself in a fiction mindset to prep yourself? Oh wow, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, for me, the big difference is that with fiction, you know, like that 14 years, it, you're basically trying to find plot. You know, like you have something happen, and then what I do is I'll write a lot of false starts that don't, when I put them in place, they don't, it doesn't seem right, and keep trying and trying, and one day you'll stumble on the next event. So that's very time intensive. And the difference is with nonfiction, uh, with these GQ pieces, you know, you'd go out for a week, and I'd take really extensive notes, and come home, and you're like, well, that's what I have to work with. Plot is already plot was given to me by reality. So then the the job became try to make uh, try to write whatever happened in the most charming way possible, 
And in doing that, you'd actually find out the structure. So that's in some ways really fun because you don't. It, there's no way that's going to take 14 years. It just can't. You know, uh, <laughs> they won't let you. But I. But I thought um, for me, what it, one thing it did was it put me back, as I said earlier, in relation with the actual, and how um, you know there, in Dubai there was this. Uh, they had this thing called the Ice Festival. So it's 140 outside, you know, yeah. and then they they took this big thing and they air conditioned, which must cost so much money. And they put an ice palace in there, and the, the occasion was all the kids would come in and get to see snow. They'd never seen snow before. Mm -hmm. So, so dear. And uh, so I'm writing that, I'm taking notes, and as I do it, this gift from above comes in. There's this, uh, a guy in a duck suit. <laughs> I don't know what the duck had to do with it, you know, kind of, it had like a little discolored feathers, you know, and, and, and I'm watching, and so there's this guy who's in charge of leading the duck, because there don't seem to be any eye holes. <laughs> So this guy leading a blind the, duck a in blind Dubai. duck yeah. in Dubai. So he's leading him in, and and the thing that was really interesting was the the duck tender kept like really kind of almost feeling up the duck. He was really like liking that duck. He kind of put his arm around it and kind of get behind, you know. And uh, so I thought, how would you ever think that up, you know? Yeah. And if he, it, yeah. So that so then it becomes okay. Now you get you get seven lines to describe the situation in a funny. Way so so now as far as going the other way that I really don't know because my way of writing fiction is so strange and uh, counterproductive that I, I'm not quite sure you know I I, I know a lot of people uh, a lot of people's fiction is very much like nonfiction and that you know you you go out uh, like uh, Catherine Ann Porter for example she would go out and experience something and you know so I'm not, that's a hard one I'm not really sure about that yeah, yeah. but George Saunders this has been a delight for thank me you too, so thank much. You. Really Uh, thank you, Tom Hall. Thank you, George Saunders. Uh, what we're going to do now is escort George down to the uh, first floor book area where he'll be glad to continue conversations and sign copies of his book. We have both uh, the 10th of December and George's backlist available downstairs. Thank you so much, Baltimore, for making this the best City Lit Festival ever. Thank you and have a good rest of your weekend.